Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. One of the most basic tools of the medical profession is a stethoscope. Yep, nursing also. Yeah. <laughs> well, the medical profession would include nurses. I feel like we've had people argue with us about that. <laughs> I mean, it's all medicine. I'm not calling anybody a doctor. <laughs> if you have been to a doctor or a nurse at any point in your life, and I hope you do get the health care you need, uh, you have probably had some experience with a stethoscope. And I wanted to peek at how they developed, just as a random, hey, where'd that come from? And then I accidentally <laughs> landed on another French medicine episode. I swear that was not my goal. There are just so many. There are. There was like this cluster of time where France was doing a lot of interesting things in in medicine. And that's because to talk about the stethoscope, we have to talk first about its inventor, René Théophile-Hyacinthe-Léonic. And then we're going to discuss how his original design, which didn't look like what we think of when we think of a stethoscope now, changed in the hands of physicians who wanted to improve on that original. Yeah, uh, when we say change, when I when I was looking for a picture to go with this on our social media, there are pictures of some of his actual stethoscopes. They are not recognizable as a stethoscope unless you are maybe a medical historian that knows what it looked like at that point. Yeah, there are some in museums, uh, and there have even been some cute staged photos throughout the years of people using them to to show how they worked, but... Yeah, they don't look like what you would walk into a doctor's office and see today. No. So, Lanik was born on February 17th, 1781 in Quimper on the far west side of France in Brittany. His father, Théophile Marie Lanik, was a civil servant. And this family wasn't especially comfortable. Part of that was because Théophile Marie was pretty careless with the finances. René's mother, Michelle Félicité Goudson, died of tuberculosis when René was five. And he, along with his brother, went to live with the Abbé Lanek, who was his granduncle. He never was described as particularly hardy as a child. He had a lot of fevers. He was described as physically weak, and it's believed that he had asthma. In his early years, Leonek was an artistic child. He wrote poetry, and he learned to play the flute. He would actually play the flute throughout his life, and some people draw a line between that and his original invention. You'll see why when we talk about what it looked like. Uh, He may have actually gone into a less scientific field than medicine, given his proclivity towards the arts, had he not moved to Nantes at the age of 12 to live with another uncle. This one was Dr. Guillaume-Francois Leonek. And in his new home, it seems that René really flourished academically. He had already studied Latin and Greek with his other uncle, and in his new home, he added English and German to the list of languages that he spoke. Uncle Guillaume was dean of the Faculté de Médecin at the University of Nantes, and soon René was assisting him at the Hôtel Dieu, treating wounded from conflicts between revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries in the area, at 14, René Leonek was assisting his uncle, and he was learning to dress wounds and look after patients. And just four years later, in 1799, he was appointed to a post as third-class surgeon at the Nantes Military Hospital before transferring to the Hospice de la Fraternité. But that second post was also short, because in 1800, Leonek moved to Paris to study dissection with expert anatomist Guillaume Dupitrin at École Pratique. 
Lanek also studied with other luminaries of French medicine at the time. His medical knowledge expanded rapidly. While still a medical student working hard enough to gain top honors, he also started publishing papers on a variety of medical topics that started in 1802. Before completing his medical degree, he had the distinction of being the first person in medicine to lecture on melanoma, which he did in 1804. Also in 1804, he wrote his thesis, Proposition sur la doctrine d'Hippocrate relativement à la médecin pratique. That's proposals on the doctrine of Hippocrates relative to practical medicine. So he was talking about all of the work of Hippocrates and how it applied to medicine uh, in his contemporary time. And he graduated from medical school as a result of completing that. And he was invited to join the faculty of the Society of the School of Medicine in Paris. His melanoma lecture that he had given while still a student was published in 1806. At this point, it really seemed like his career was on the rise. He already built a reputation through his writing. He had made the discovery that tubercle lesions, which are the nodules that form in the tissues of patients with tuberculosis, He discovered that those lesions could form anywhere in the body, not just in the lungs. Previously to this work, that was what people thought, that it was only in the lungs. This actually tied to his work on melanoma because he actually had discovered the distinction between lesions from melanoma and lesions from consumption. Because he had studied with some of the greatest medical experts of the time and had written extensively about his studies in tuberculosis as well as peritonitis and amenorrhea, He was recognized for a high level of expertise in the field, and that was in spite of his young age. His life was soon to have some difficulties, though. In a short span of time, Léonek had a falling out with his mentor, de Poitrin, and his uncle, like his mother, died from tuberculosis. The issue with de Poitrin was rooted in his melanoma paper. His mentor had also worked on similar research and felt that he had not been properly credited in Léonek's work. That was particularly insulting to Dupuytren because his student was credited with having discovered melanoma with no mention of Dupuytren's work at all. The two men actually fought about this for several years. And the stress of this and the loss of his uncle caused Léonek's medical issues to flare up to the point where he had to take a break from his work and take a leave of absence. And during that time, he visited Brittany, where he was born, to relax and recover. When he felt better, René Léonek returned to Paris to try to pick up where he'd left off. His private practice of medicine went pretty well. He had lots of patients, and he became part owner and editor of Journal de Médecine, which was not surprising, considering how much medical writing had been part of his career. What he was hoping was that he would also get a job in a leadership position on a Parisian hospital staff. That didn't happen, though. In 1808, he founded Athénée Médicale, that's Medical Athenaeum, which was also eventually absorbed in the Academic Society of Paris. This was a time when Léonek, who had always been a devout Roman Catholic, really recommitted to his religion. And that led to his appointment as the personal physician of Cardinal Joseph Fesch. That religious devotion was the reason he found his aspirations at a hospital job a little bit out of reach. Uh, Because while France was very Catholic, the academic community actually found Léonek too conservative, and they thought he was a bit out of step with his contemporaries, even though he was making a lot of significant discoveries. During the War of 1812, while still working for Cardinal Fesch, Léonek headed up the care of wounded soldiers in Paris's Salpêtrière Hospital, 
All the hospital's wounded soldiers were given beds in wards that Lanek led. And two years later, his position with the Cardinal ended. Fesch was the French ambassador to the Vatican and, more importantly, Napoleon's half-brother. So when Napoleon fell, he was exiled. Lanek's job was gone at that point. In 1816, Leonek finally got that position that had always eluded him, an appointment as a hospital physician. He was hired at Necker Hospital as head of hospital service, and that same year, he also created the medical apparatus that would change medicine. That new position at the hospital was not entirely a joyous appointment, however. It had opened up because one of Leonek's mentors and his close friend, Gaspard Laurent Bale, had died of tuberculosis. We are about to talk about the moment of inspiration that led to the first stethoscope. But first, we are going to take a moment of our own for a sponsor break. The story of the stethoscope's actual moment of invention has taken on a few inconsistencies, as we frequently see when it comes to historically significant events. But these actually aren't too wildly varied. They mostly just involve the timing of this inspiration. That inspiration was Leonek witnessing two children playing in the courtyard of Le Louvre Palace. So he's said to have seen these two kids using a long piece of wood to send signals to each other. They would scratch the end of the solid piece with a pin. One child was doing the scratching, while the other one listened on the other end, listening for the sound to travel through the wood. So in some versions of this story, he sees this happening, and then a lot of time passes before he he tries to put it into use. But in others, he was walking on the way to see a patient when he saw these two kids doing this. Either way, though, the kids and their wooden sound conveyance are credited with inspiring Leonek. When the doctor himself wrote about it, though, he did not mention these kids. He did mention the pin scratching a wood beam. Yes, he wrote it, quote, I recalled a well-known acoustic phenomenon. If you place your ear against one end of a wood beam, the scratch of a pin at the other end is distinctly audible. It occurred to me that this physical property might serve a useful purpose in the case I was dealing with. I then tightly rolled a sheet of paper, one end of which I placed over the precordium, chest, and my ear to the other. I was surprised and elated to be able to hear the beating of her heart with far greater clearness than I ever had with direct application of my ear. I immediately saw that this might become an indispensable method for studying not only the beating of the heart, but all movements able of producing sound in the chest cavity. We're jumping ahead just a bit, though, because the case at hand was also a source of inspiration. And this is often described as Lanex solving a problem of embarrassment as much as one of medical need. In September of 1816, the doctor was called to see a young woman who had, quote, general symptoms of a diseased heart. He wanted to listen to her chest. To be clear, auscultation, which is listening to the sound of a patient's heart, lungs, or other organs, that was not a new idea in 1816. Hippocrates had made references to internal sounds as a means of diagnosis, and doctors who preceded Leonek had theorized that some sort of mechanism might eventually be developed that would enable physicians to listen to their patients' bodily sounds. But more specifically leading up to this particular moment and influencing Leonek's idea was the work of Viennese doctor Leopold Aunbrugger. 
he had used an idea that he had seen in his youth, his father tapping a barrel to see how full it was, and applied that concept to medical examinations. He determined that a human chest that was filled with fluid would sound dull when you tapped it, whereas a healthy human chest cavity would have resonance when tapped. And this percussive diagnosis method was something that had been written about in the 18th century and translated into French by Napoleon's doctor, Jean-Nicolas Corvisseur de Marret, who was also one of Leonek's teachers in 1808. Aside from tapping on a patient's chest, the other method for collecting information for diagnosis of chest ailments was immediate auscultation, which meant that the doctor would put their head directly onto the patient's chest and listen. But in this particular case, Leonek was reluctant because of the patient's age and sex. He did not want to put his head up against her chest. And this is when he recalled the uh, idea that we just quoted. Because he recognized he could actually hear better with his rolled-up sheet of paper than with his ear alone, this started him down a path of experimenting to further develop this idea And that came to be called mediate auscultation. Yeah, we're going to talk about percussion again a bit uh, towards the end of the episode, but they were kind of tied up together as this, like, listen to the sounds the body makes and you will figure things out. So he did, as Tracy said, start experimenting and created multiple versions. And his refined versions, which he worked on for several years, still did not ever really look like the stethoscopes we're familiar with today. Uh, Remember, for one thing, things like rubber tubing were just not around yet. Leonek focused on creating his stethoscopes out of wood. He had experimented with other materials, but he found a hollow wooden tube to produce the best sound. Sometimes people attribute this back to his work playing the flute and how he made that connection, but it's not entirely clear. But he created a chest piece that fitted at one end and further improved his ability to hear, and then he made his stethoscope into two pieces that could be unscrewed for ease of carrying, and then they could be quickly screwed back together so that a doctor could use them for diagnosis. In 1818, René Leonek gave a presentation about his stethoscope at the Paris Academy of Sciences. In 1819, he published a two-volume book about his work, was immediate auscultation or treatise on diagnosis of lung and heart diseases. He described his stethoscope in it. This was 25 centimeters long and three and a half centimeters in diameter. And the name for the stethoscope didn't come into print until 1820. Before that, he just called his device Le Cylindre, uh, which if you see some pictures of it, it just, it looks like a cylinder. <laughs> Does not see have any fancy adornments. There's no like ear trumpet kind of shape to it, just looks like a cylinder. Eventually, though, he went with the root of stethos, which was the Greek word for chest. Yeah, you'll see that second part of the word, the scope, attributed to like a kajillion different words to create this portmanteau. Everything from Greek words to French words to, um, you know, some that just go, well, it's scope because it's a scope, which is pretty funny. Uh, so <laughs> uh, he also included in that that work his two-volume book, extensive research that he had done using this invention. He treated a lot of patients with pneumonia, and he used this stethoscope in assessing their conditions. When any of his patients died, he performed autopsies, and he found that the conclusions he had been able to reach using his new instrument were corroborated by what he found. 
Lanik's stethoscope was quickly recognized as invaluable for diagnosis, and as his book was translated starting in 1821 in London, doctors from around the European continent soon were eager to learn how to use it, and a lot of them traveled to Paris to hear lectures from Lanik himself. After this, Lanik continued his medical career. In 1822, he was made the chair and professor of medicine at the College of France, and the year after became the professor of medicine at Hôpital de la Charité. He was a member of the French Academy of Medicine also. He quickly garnered such a reputation for really excellent lectures that the lecture halls were frequently packed with doctors that wished to hear him speak. Lanet kept a log of everyone who attended his lectures and kept an almost ridiculously busy schedule of hospital rounds, lectures, and consultations. Yeah, there's a, uh, you will occasionally find some papers that talk about how you can trace Leonek through these logs that he kept of doctors that attended his lectures and then how his information and his knowledge of pulmonary disease in particular kind of propagated throughout the world over time. At this point, he was in his 40s, and Leonek finally settled into his now successful career, and he actually got married to a widow named Jacquette guichard Agu. And the newlyweds wanted to start a family that was unfortunately not to be. Uh, their one pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. And soon after that loss, which he took quite hard, his health began to decline. He was actually in a little bit of denial about this for a while. He had not realized, despite all of his work and research in tuberculosis, how very contagious it was. There had been discussion of tuberculosis as a contagious disease even before his time, but there were also theories that it could be hereditary. There were some theories that it could even be a type of cancer. So it wasn't necessarily uh, universally recognized as a contagious disease. The term tuberculosis didn't even exist yet. That wouldn't happen until the following decade when it was coined by German doctor Johann Schonlein. But over time, he had all the telltale symptoms of tuberculosis. He was finally diagnosed by his nephew, Meredek Leinek, using a stethoscope to listen to the much-beloved doctor. Although René Leinek once again traveled to Brittany in the spring of 1826, hoping that his health would improve, that did not achieve the desired result. He was able to finish a revised edition of his book on immediate auscultation that was published that year, it had specific details of certain sounds and what they might indicate. This work laid the groundwork for knowledge of pulmonary diseases. Leonek died not long after it was completed. That was on August 13, 1826. Leonek's work continues to be part of modern medicine. He was the first to describe micronodular cirrhosis of the liver, which is still known as Leonek's cirrhosis, and his extensive writing on pulmonary classifications is still used. He advanced the medical community's understanding of pneumonia, emphysema, and other conditions. There's a coda to this part of the story, though, in terms of how Leonek was viewed just a decade after he died. In an 1838 English-language translation of his treatise on the diseases of the chest and on mediate auscultation, the translator included some interesting discussion about Leonek's writings about himself. The translator's note states in the first paragraph, quote, the original treatise will remain an imperishable monument of the genius and industry of its author, and the discovery of which it treats will entitle him to a distinguished rank among the benefactors of mankind. 
As a standard work on the pathology and diagnosis of the diseases of the chest, it is not only without an equal, but may be considered as almost perfect in its kind. But then a couple of paragraphs down, after continuing to mention the importance of auscultation, the same translator writes, quote, at the same time, it would be exacting too much from the weakness of humanity to expect that the author of immediate auscultation should, in no case, have yielded to the enthusiasm naturally inspired by the consciousness of so great a discovery. And if, in a few passages of his book, he should be found to somewhat exaggerate the actual or relative importance of his method, or even sometimes to appear rather as the partisan than the historian of the stethoscope, I am sure that a fault so venial and in such a man ought not to be visited by heavy censure. Essentially, this says that the translator thinks that Leonek is puffing up the importance of his invention, but that it's also okay because he really was pretty great and he did advance medicine with his work. It's a fascinating way to frame all this, and it seems like maybe he's trying to pre-address critics of Leonek since he also mentions that some people claim to have tried the stethoscope and found it unhelpful. Just a glimpse into this perception of this device while it was still in its infancy after Leonek's death. Yeah, he. Uh, a lot of doctors were super into it, but there were some that were like, I tried to listen, I didn't get anything. Um, so, <laughs> so it's just kind of an interesting thing to know that there was a little bit of controversy, as much as, as it does sound in a lot of ways like the medical community pretty quickly picked it up. But you may be wondering what came of this invention, uh, because it obviously took a number of additional turns as it developed into the tool that we see commonly in use today. And we're going to talk about some of those turns after we first hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. Several other physicians contributed to the development of the stethoscope. The first change to it actually appeared in the last year of Leonek's life. That was the work of Pierre-Adolphe Piori, who was born 13 years after Leonek on December 31, 1794. And he started studying medicine when he was just 15, and at the age of 19, he became aide chirurgien militaire in the Napoleonic Wars, when he was drafted while he was still a medical student. In that role, he traveled to Spain, and he got a very hands-on education at a military hospital in Barcelona. Like Leonek, he studied medicine with men such as Corvissard and Bale once he got back to Paris. And in 1816, he completed the thesis that earned him his medical degree. That was titled, On the Danger of Reading Medical Textbooks by the Laity. He started working at L'Académie de Médecins in 1825, and he was considered to be a gifted teacher, from there, he climbed a ladder in Paris's medical facilities and became the chair of medicine at L'Hôpital de Pitié in 1837. Puri specialized in percussion as a clinician, and that, as we mentioned earlier, is exactly what it sounds like, tapping parts of the body to gain an understanding of the structures and the organs within. And Leonek had actually used his cylindrical stethoscope for percussion as well. He used it as a tapping tool. But the success of the stethoscope's use in auscultation had sort of eclipsed the practice of percussion. And Pierre wanted to both replicate Leonek's success and reputation and gain his own renown, while also reiterating the usefulness of percussion as a diagnostic tool. Perhaps the most charming thing about his story is that he was a poet as well as a physician, and he wrote about his work in percussion and his contribution to the stethoscope in a poem titled Dieu, l'âme et nature, or God, soul, and nature. 
In the poem, he described praying to God to be able to contribute to the development of medicine as Leonek had, and how he was inspired when he came aware of the sound he heard when he scratched his own chest. Immediately, he began to experiment in this area, eventually developing a method of placing a small plate between the patient's skin and the doctor's finger to both control the way the sound was heard and to reduce the discomfort to the patient of being tapped in this one spot repeatedly. Soon, he integrated this plate with a stethoscope. An example of Pierre's version of the tool was included as an illustration in that same English-language translation on Leonek's work that we referred to just a bit ago. And it describes Pierre's stethoscope this way, quote, This stethoscope is constructed exactly on the same principles as that of Leonek, but with several modifications intended to render it lighter, smaller, and more portable. In it, the central bore and conical cavity of the pectoral extremity are preserved of the original dimensions, but the body of the instrument is greatly reduced in size, and the proper width is given to the auricular extremity by screwing a thin ivory cap to the slender body of the instrument. The pleximeter is attached to the stethoscope merely with a view to render the former conveniently portable. So in case that's not clear, it was a smaller version of the stethoscope, but one end of it expanded out in a wide, shallow, conical shape with a plate, that was the pleximeter, over the widest part of the cone. The flat plate would be placed against the torso of the patient, and then the doctor would tap it with a finger or a small hammer. Today, physicians will usually use their hand instead of a plate for this, Leonek actually attended Puri's talk at the Royal Academy of Medicine when he introduced these ideas, although Puri's book on the subject didn't come out until well after René Leonek had died. Puri had included the inventor of the stethoscope in the dedication. Yeah, uh, it's unclear, uh, you know, what Leonek's response was. He was the, was the end of his life, so he probably did not have a lot of uh, energy to write at length about it. The first binaural stethoscope, meaning that it had separate earpieces for each ear, was the work of Dr. Nathan B. Marsh. You'll actually see a few different people credited with this um, because many people were trying to improve it at the same time. Marsh was born in the late 18-teens in Newark, New Jersey, and moved when he was still quite a small boy with his family to Cincinnati, Ohio. There is a Marsh stethoscope in the collection of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History that's not a fully intact model. The earpieces and their connector tubes are missing, but this one has three ebony bells of differing sizes that you can screw off and on. Marsh received the first patent for a binaural stethoscope. That was U.S. Patent 8591 in 1851. But the following year, a version was invented by New York Dr. George P. Kamen. Kamen, who was born in 1804, had actually traveled to Paris for postgraduate work in the late 1820s, and he had studied with some of Leonek's colleagues. In his work in New York with the city's poor population at the Northern Dispensary, Uh, which was a free clinic that opened in 1830, he wanted to improve his diagnostic tools so that he could get as much information as possible in cases where he just had limited time with the patients. Yeah, I saw one one write-up theorizing that some of it, too, because New York had a large immigrant population, he had to be able to do diagnostics in ways that did not count on everyone speaking the same language. 
I don't know if that's true or not. That was a theorization. Uh, as a result of that desire, though, to just improve his ability to work with his patients, he built on models that he had already seen that had two earpieces. Although, in some cases, those two earpiece versions were designed so that two physicians could listen to a person's chest at one time. There were also other doctors working on binaural stethoscopes, but there had been problems making a model that was practical for continual daily use. Kamen tested various materials and designs, and he finally came up with a design very similar to modern instruments, if you see a picture of it. In Kamen's version, there were two stiff metal tubes with ivory earpieces, and the ends opposite the earpieces on those metal tubes connected to two flexible tubes with tightly wound silk coverings. Those flexible tubes connected into a hollow ball, which connected to the bell section, which was held to the patient's chest. That hollow ball was said to um, amplify the sound. Kama's device was manufactured for wide distribution, but he didn't patent it because he thought it should be available to all physicians. In the 1890s, the phonendoscope was introduced by two Italian doctors, Eugenio Bazzi and Aurelio Bianchi. This design, which the inventors claimed was superior to the stethoscope, had a rigid diaphragm disc and a removable outer disc, and then a rod that extended from one side of the larger disc and held a smaller rubber disc. The side opposite that had two metal tubes extending from its center that could be fitted with rubber tubes that ran up to earpieces. That was a departure from the Kamen style that at that point had been adopted by physicians around the world. And while it was produced for several decades, it eventually fell out of favor. It is an odd-looking thing to me if you see it. It's like the little rod that extends with the smaller piece looks so tiny compared to the larger disc it comes from. I'm like, why Why would you put such a teeny piece up against a patient? But what do I know? Uh, also in the 1890s, Massachusetts doctor Robert Bowles invented a diaphragm chest piece, which was a departure from the bell shape that had been the most common design. And it was very simple to apply that because of its its large surface area to the patient's chest. In 1926, the Bowles design was incorporated with the Bell design into one chest piece by Boston's Howard Sprague to respond for the demand for an instrument that had both options. So in the Sprague version, instead of that Bell, it created a shape that looks like a cone with a diaphragm over the widest part. This came to be known as the Sprague-Bowles stethoscope, and it was very popular for the next two decades. In the 1940s, Sprague, who was a cardiologist, once again revisited the design of the stethoscope, this time with collaborator Maurice Rappaport. Together, they came up with a chest piece that was two-sided. One side was optimal for listening to the cardiovascular system, while the other was best for respiratory assessments. This was an attempt to separate out the best-of-both-worlds approach of the Sprague-Bowles model, and it worked, but... When the two tubes that led from the double-sided chest piece to the air pieces rubbed together, it created so much interference that it could be really frustrating to doctors. Can you imagine, like, I'm trying to listen to your lung function. What is that scraping noise? <laughs> it's actually my instrument. Uh, the next <laughs> step in stethoscope evolution came from Dr. David Littman, who was a Harvard Medical School professor and a cardiologist. 
And Littman addressed those issues with the Sprague and Rappaport version of the stethoscope by creating a one-sided chest piece. So unlike theirs, which you had to flip side to side, his was just one-sided and it had a diaphragm that had a, a dial that could be tuned for different purposes. This 1960s version remains the design for standard stethoscopes today. Littman founded a company called Cardiosonics to manufacture his device. That company was eventually acquired by 3M. Today, of course, there are all kinds of specialized stethoscopes, stethoscopes with Bluetooth connectivity, and even plans you can download online if you want to print your own stethoscope with a 3D printer, among other developments. They're all still based on that Litman design, and that has roots that easily trace back to Leodec. Stethoscopes, who knew? <laughs> I, um... It's it's I love reading about how it was really all because he was he didn't want to touch his patient directly. Honestly, they're a little newer than I would have thought because I think things like ear trumpets are a little older than this. There's at least yes. like written and it like just seems like somebody would have stuck their ear trumpet onto somebody's, you know, chest. <laughs> Man, no. They were just sticking their ear up against their chest. Um we can talk some more about that in the behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. But in the meantime, I have a listener mail, which is uh, from our listener, Angie, about one of our episodes that's a little less lighthearted. It is uh, the Mildred Fish Harnack episode. She writes, hi, Tracy and Holly. I just got done listening to the Mildred Fish Harnack episode. I adore your podcast, and I listen to it while I jog after work. This episode must have made me look crazy to passersby because I was openly sobbing, like the ugly cry kind while still jogging and listening. Um, boy, I know that feeling because I did that a few times while I was prepping it. Uh, Mildred's story touched me deeply and more than I thought it could. I am a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and it made my heart swell to learn how brave and true Mildred was. Uh, UW-Madison places a strong emphasis on using your education to help others. This is called the Wisconsin Idea, and I cannot help but think that moral compass was cemented in Mildred's heart during her college years. I also studied German languages as an undergrad at UW, where we learned not just the language, but also about the White Rose Resistance group and others who stood up for what was right and paid with their lives. Uh, one of my professors in the German department grew up in East Germany, and she described living through the horrifying experiences of East German informants. It was a dystopia where anyone would inform on anyone else. Children reported parents, wives reported husbands. You literally could not trust yourself to speak your thoughts even in your own room because you never knew if your own home was bugged. It was, and still is to this day, I believe, the most widespread and organized state surveillance effort in the world. Even then, though, there were people like my professor who met with other resistors and stood up for what was right, even in small ways. She later found out she had a lengthy file with the police. After reunification, East Germany ceased to be, and those files were made public. Uh, she asked if we could potentially do a, a show on, on East German resistance. We might. Uh, we do definitely have one from the archives on the White Rose. And then she uh, also sent us some beautiful, beautiful pictures. I'm sorry I made you cry, but I'm glad that Mildred's story is getting more widespread um, you know, discussion in general. There's also a, a new book about her a couple people have written to us about. So there's uh, plenty to cover if you want to to read and learn about her. She was quite amazing. Uh, thank you for writing to us, Angie. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History and subscribing is easy as pie. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. <laughs> 
Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.